everyone. Welcome. We'll begin our study this evening of 2 Corinthians, and we'll begin with a word of prayer. Eternal Heavenly Father, our great sovereign God, this uh, year of 2020 certainly has been one of turmoil. It's been a very challenging year for the world and for the nation and for my family in particular. We thank you that we have you and your son and your word as sources of stability, as anchors to our souls. We thank you that you have given us instruction and examples of how to behave, how to conduct ourselves as individual Christians and as members of the body, members of your church, how to behave and how to function corporately. Thank you for these things and we ask that you would help us to understand them more fully as we examine them in this book of 2 Corinthians. In Jesus' name, amen. So tonight we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians, Jesus Christ, our sufficiency. We'll be looking first, of course, at the flight acronym, the facts, the landmarks, the itinerary, in other words, the outline of the book, how it relates to the gospel, that's the G. History is the H and T is the travel tips, the implications and applications of the book. The Apostle Paul wrote the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, as I mentioned last time with 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Romans are epistles of Paul that are just pretty much almost universally agreed that they are written by Paul. Some of the epistles we'll talk about later uh, are disputed, but of course they were written by Paul. Paul was around 50 years old and at the end of his third missionary journey, when he penned this letter, departing from Ephesus, where he had stayed for more than two years, he headed to Macedonia to pursue various ministry opportunities. It was in Macedonia that he wrote 2 Corinthians, hoping for a chance to make a personal visit to the Corinthian church. Paul wrote 2 Corinthians between AD 56 and 57, perhaps a month or so after 1 Corinthians, and from, probably from the city of Philippi. Sometime after Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, false teachers infiltrated the church at Corinth, spreading opposition against Paul because they thought he was unqualified to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Their information began to erode the church's confidence in Paul. So he sent Titus as a representative to deal with the situation. And as a result, the majority of the church reconsidered their attitude and repented of their actions. Paul wrote 2 Corinthians to express his joy at their turnaround and to appeal to them to accept his authority.
Paul wrote more about himself in this letter than in any other. He explained his ministry in the first seven chapters, talked about the collection for the saints in chapters eight and nine, and defended his apostleship in the last four chapters. Several times throughout the book, especially in his fool's speech, as it is called, he referred to the many hardships he had suffered with the gospel. Overall, though, as he explained his absence, enlisted their help, and established his own apostolic credentials, Paul's key word was encouragement. That was the word that he had overall for the Corinthian church. His affection for the Corinthian church, though stern in places, is clear throughout The itinerary, the outline of the book, 1 1 through 2 13, we see Paul's correction. In 2 14 through 6 10, we see Paul's explanation. In 6 11 through 7 16, we see Paul's exhortation. In 8 1 through 9 15, we see Paul's collection. He's collecting an offering for the saints in Jerusalem. And then in 10, 1 through 13, 13, we see Paul's vindication. There, there's one more verse, uh, 13, 14, which is a beautiful, uh, a beautiful benediction we often hear uh, at the end of our church service. The gospel. God's plan to populate his kingdom with redeemed people centers on what may be called the great exchange. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This verse is perhaps the clearest and most succinct declaration in the whole of the Bible of what theologians refer to as vicarious or substitutionary atonement. God made Jesus a substitute for us to pay for our sin. As Isaiah wrote, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. The prophet was seeing this great exchange. God giving us his righteousness in exchange for our sin. To us, it seems like God got a bad deal. All our failures, botches, shortcomings, abuses, infractions, and filthiness were all his righteousness, blamelessness, and perfection. That was his plan all along at the cross. God treated Jesus the way we deserve to be treated, so that he could treat us the way Jesus deserves to be treated. This truth is the salient core of the gospel message. If you take that to heart, all the hardship you go through in this life has a much greater purpose. That truth can help you pass the pain. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Your suffering is not hopeless, but will be worth it in the end. But because Paul opened his heart to make these points, being straightforward and honest about his own 
personal hardships that made a deeper impact on the Corinthians and they still resonate with us today. Corinth was a prominent city in New Testament times, known particularly for its theaters, athletics, religions, and cultural life. And it was also known for the seedy side of each of those things as well. Being a seaport city was ready-made for the sleazy made easy activities for which this traveler's town had become known. Paul visited the city multiple times to preach the gospel and encourage the Christians in the area. During his first visit to Corinth sometime around AD 50, Paul stayed for 18 months and helped plant the siege that would germinate into the Corinthian church, probably in, 18, in AD 52. It was during Paul's third missionary journey uh, around AD 52 to 57 that he most likely wrote his letters to the Corinthians. I showed you uh, this map last time, map of Corinth. In the lower right, you can see where it's located there in the larger Mediterranean area, with Italy off to the left and Turkey off to the right. And it's, uh, it's almost an island, but it is connected to the mainland by a narrow isthmus. And that's right where Corinth is located, where you see the, the red pin there. It was a major seaport, major trading area. And there's a, a view of Corinth today, of the, the bay, the harbor there, the city. And off to the right is that isthmus of land that connects Achaia, as it was called, to the to the mainland. But what do we learn from the book of Second Corinthians? First of all, don't waste your suffering. As an apostle, Paul experienced an abundance of persecution, and not just from the world, but from within the church as well. As hard as it may be, God has a purpose for whatever you're going through. Making the most of your suffering is a sign of true Christian maturity, maturity which produces contentment and joy. Seek and promote forgiveness, especially in the church. Paul encouraged the church to restore an individual who had repented of an offense for which Paul had recommended submitting his attendance in 1 Corinthians. Further, he told them to embrace the man again, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And when there is strife and contention in the church, Satan is eager to jump on that as an opportunity to cause more strife and division. Allowing unforgiveness in the church would play right into the devil's hands, giving him a foothold from which to divide the congregation. Ministry is not an easy road. Many people think serving the Lord by working for a church must be great. You get to work with other believers for the glory of God, after all. While that's true, ministry is by no means easy. What Paul experienced, trials both in and outside the church, physical hardship, in the trenches, spiritual warfare, isn't unusual. It's the norm. 
It's the things that we can expect. Satan to hurl at us either through our circumstances or through people that are working against us. Cheerful giving is part of your faith. You can tell a lot about a person's spirituality or lack thereof from his attitude about money. Paul praised the Corinthians for willingly giving to his ministry. The spiritual benefits of giving to follow, giving follow the principle of sowing and reaping. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or necessity, but God loves a cheerful giver. To whom was the book of 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians for that matter, to whom was it written? The letter was written to a church that Paul founded on his second missionary journey. We read about that in Acts chapter 18. In his letter, Paul addresses two groups in the church at Corinth. There's two groups there. First, there is the majority, you all. Some people joke about them. Paul must have been from the South because he talked to y'all. But anyway, the first nine chapters of the book are addressed to y'all. The, the, the section of the book is jubilant in tone. It's very happy, very joyous. But then in chapters 10 through 13, he has to address the minority, some. And he is sad and severe in tone in that section. There were false teachers who had infiltrated the church. Precisely who they were is a subject of debate. There are three main views. Uh, they could have been Hellenistic Jews claiming to be in the line of Moses, or Gnostic or ascetic false teachers denying Christ's humanity. And we talked about those, the, the Gnostics and the Docetists, when um, we were talking about the epistles of John first, second, and third John, those who denied Christ's humanity. Or they could have been Palestinian Jews claiming to be apostles of Christ. And once again, by, by Palestinian, I mean from, from the land of Israel. We contrast first Corinthians with second Corinthians. We see some notable differences between the two. First Corinthians is more objective and practical. Second Corinthians has more subjective and personal. First Corinthians is systematic. Second Corinthians is more sentimental. In first Corinthians, there's a concentration on the pagan influence. In second Corinthians, there's a concentration on the Judaistic influence. In first Corinthians, we learn about Paul's mind. In 2 Corinthians, we learn about Paul's heart. In 1 Corinthians, we learn about the character of the church. And in 2 Corinthians, we learn a lot about the character of Paul, Paul himself. Purposes of 2 Corinthians. One purpose was to answer the false teachers who had entered the church at Corinth. Another purpose was to defend his apostleship, the apostleship of Paul, and his message. 
both of those had been challenged been uh, dismissed have been derided and he found it necessary to defend his apostleship and message and the purpose was to reveal tri his trials and triumphs as an apostle of christ he rejoiced in his triumphs but he also recognized that, that christ was with him in his trials and using those trials to advance the gospel and the purpose was to show the consolation provided in the service of Christ. And to encourage their giving to the poor. And that is in the section where he talks about giving, where he's taking up an offering for the poor saints at Jerusalem. Of course, overall, it was written to encourage the Corinthians and to be jubilant and triumphant in their Christian faith. theme of first corinthians i mentioned before jubilation in christ how we can have joy even in the midst of trials and difficulties key verse of second corinthians now thanks be to god who always leads us in triumph in christ the doctrinal value of the book there are many doctrines taught in this book these include the distinction between the old and the new covenant in chapter 3 verses 6 through 18 the substitutionary atonement that's a very important part of the book uh, that's summarized in chapter 5 verse 21 reconciliation to god chapter 5 verses 18 through 20 separation from the world in chapter 6 verse 14 life and death chapter 5 verses 1 through 10 the trinity that's summarized for us in chapter 13 or, uh, chapter 13 verse 14 and then finally the nature of an apostle we learned some important things and that's important to understand that is given to us in Second Corinthians and also in First Corinthians uh, and in Acts as well. It's important to understand what the characteristics of an apostle are because we have many today who in our day who claim that they are apostles and the Bible the New Testament very clearly clearly gives us the criterion criteria that we should use in judging whether or not a person who claims to be an apostle really is an apostle. Paul's life. There are details of Paul's life in this book not found elsewhere in his writings. He had visions. He suffered from a thorn in the flesh. He suffered many perils. And we learn about all of these details of Paul's life in this book of 2 Corinthians, 
and nowhere else. More than any other letter in Paul, 2 Corinthians allows us a glimpse into his feelings about himself, about his apostolic ministry, and about his relation to the churches he founded and nurtured. This letter is autobiographical in tone, though not in framework or substance. In other words, it's not, it's not organized around the feelings and experiences of Paul, but he, in the course of, of this letter, he tells us about his feelings and experiences. The painful visit. Now, this is something about First and Second Corinthians that uh, we need to understand. It, it might be new to some of you, to perhaps to a lot of you. So I'll try to explain this as best as I can. After writing First Corinthians from Ephesus, Paul found it necessary to make a painful visit to Corinth and back. Painful because of the strained relationship between him and the Corinthians at the time. Now Luke in the book of Acts does not record this visit. It is to be inferred, however, from 2 Corinthians 12, 14 and 13, 1 through 2, where Paul describes his coming visit as the third visit. So if this coming visit is the, is the third visit, there had to be a second visit, right? So apart from the inferred painful visit, he has visited Corinth only once before. The statement in 2 Corinthians 2.1, for I decided not to make another painful visit to you, implies a past painful visit that can hardly be identified with his first coming to give them the joyful tidings of salvation through Jesus Christ. So in other words, the first time that he came to Corinth, that was when he preached the gospel. And then there was a, a second painful visit that's not recorded in the book of Acts. Before this third painful visit. The lost sorrowful letter. letter. Whatever the reason for Paul's making the short painful visit, he was unsuccessful in bringing the church into line. On returning to Ephesus, therefore, he wrote a now lost sorrowful letter to Corinth, which at first he regretted having sent. Told in 2 Corinthians. Despite frequent attempts at identification, his descriptions of the sorrowful letter do not fit 1 Corinthians, which exhibits considerable criticism on Paul's part, but hardly any sorrow. So, Many scholars have tried to identify this sorrowful letter with 1 Corinthians, but actually there must have been a sorrowful letter that was that Paul sent to Corinth in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. So the sorrowful letter is, is his second lost one to Corinth. It commanded the church to discipline a particularly strident individual particularly noisy and clamorous individual who was leading the opposition against Paul. Titus carried the letter to Corinth. Meanwhile, knowing that Titus would return via Macedonia and Troas, and being anxious to hear from Titus the reaction of the Corinthians, Paul left Ephesus and waited in Troas. 
when Titus failed to arrive quickly, Paul went on to Macedonia, where Titus finally met him and reported that the majority in the church had repented of their rebellion against Paul and had disciplined the leader of opposition to him. So when people first hear this, when they first told this, sometimes their, their reaction is, uh, is uh, alarm, panic, you know, what? Are you saying that some of the books of the New Testament are lost, that we don't have them? Well, no, that's not what we're saying at all. All of the books that were inspired by the Holy Spirit and that God intended to become part of the New Testament have done so. They are there. They are in the New Testament and they've been preserved down through the centuries for the church and we have them. But what you need to understand is that not everything that Paul wrote made it to the New Testament. Not everything that Paul wrote was intended by God to be in the New Testament. So they haven't been lost from the New Testament. Uh, that is true of Paul, and that's more than likely true of, of the other writers of the New Testament too. Not everything that they ever wrote is included in the New Testament. The things that they wrote that were inspired by the Holy Spirit and that God intended to be in the New Testament are there. You know, if, if we had to, uh, preserve everything that Paul ever wrote, uh, the, uh, all of the invoices and receipts that he wrote uh, in his uh, tent-making business. We'd have to include them in the New Testament too, right? Well, not everything that Paul wrote was intended to be included in the New Testament. The things that are intended to be in the New Testament are there. So this is a, a summary of Paul's dealings with the Corinthian church uh, put together from from the book of Acts, from 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And this is, this is how it went. First of all, Paul evangelizes Corinth during his second missionary journey. Paul writes a letter which is now lost, which we don't have, in which he commands the Corinthian church to disassociate from professing Christians who live immorally. And then Paul writes 1st Corinthians, from Ephesus during his third missionary journey to deal with a variety of problems in the church. So he, he wrote this letter, which we no longer have, to Corinth, to the church at Corinth. And then later on, he wrote 1 Corinthians, which we do have in our New Testament. And then after this, Paul made a quick, painful visit from Ephesus to Corinth and back to straighten out the problems at Corinth but he fails to accomplish his purpose. Paul sends another lost letter, a letter that we don't have, called the Sorrowful Letter, in which he commands the Corinthians to discipline his leading opponent in the church. Paul leaves Ephesus and anxiously waits for Titus first at Troas and then in Macedonia. He's waiting because he's anxiously wanting to know how this turned out when, when uh, Titus took this letter to Corinth. Titus finally arrives with good news that the church has disciplined Paul's opponent 
that most of the Corinthians have submitted to Paul's authority. Then Paul writes 2 Corinthians, which we do have in the New Testament, from Macedonia, still on the third missionary journey, in response to Titus' favorable report. So that's a, a summary of what, what happened between Paul and the church in Corinth. Now we'll look uh, briefly at the text of 2 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 3. The letter opens with a greeting and thanksgiving for comfort from God in persecutions and hardships. Paul opened his heart to the church. He helped found at Corinth, extending God's grace and blessing his name. Not because that was a spiritual sounding thing to do, but because it was God's grace and blessing that had allowed him to survive a number of trials with a full heart. And he wanted those things to comfort the Corinthians too. He wanted to show them that the, despite the hardships that he had endured as an apostle, that God strengthened him and he was strengthening the the Corinthians as well. Paul then begins to describe his ministry as sincere and holy, and he defends himself against the charge of vacillation, failure to carry out a threatened further visit, by claiming that his words are just as affirmative as the promises of God in Christ, and by explaining that he has delayed his visit to give the Corinthians time for repentance. Their repentance would make for an arrival under happier circumstances than otherwise. So if he, he came and they hadn't repented, it wouldn't be such a heavy meeting, such a heavy gathering, but he was giving them time to repent. Part of Paul's purpose was to let the Corinthians know that he wasn't looming over their shoulders, looking to criticize and judge them. He was standing with them and pulling for them. And when he had previously uh, sought to correct their behavior, it gave him no joy to use tough love. Paul said this, he said, for out of much, much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. Pleased that the Corinthian church has disciplined his leading opponent, Paul advises restoration of the man in the churchly fellowship. This would be shown especially by allowing him to participate again in the Lord's Supper. This section closes with a metaphor of Christ as a victorious general entering Rome in a triumphal procession, and another metaphor in which the Corinthian Christians, as Paul's converts, are a letter of recommendation for Paul, written by Christ himself. So Paul pointed to the Corinthian church as his letter of recommendation written by Christ that he could present 
to other areas as he visited them, preached the gospel, founded churches. In chapter 3, 4, verse 4 through 7, 16, Paul now describes the superiority of his gospel over the Mosaic law, which is sort of a, a summary of what we read in the in the epistle to the Hebrews. The fading of God's glory from the face of Moses when he descended from Mount Sinai represents the temporariness of the Mosaic covenant. It was given by God, but it was given for a point in time. Christians are free from the condemnation of the law, but just as Moses reflected the fading glory of the old covenant, Christians should now reflect the permanent, greater, and increasing glory of the new covenant. We have been given a new permanent glory to reflect. How amazing that God should entrust the preaching of this glorious gospel of the new covenant to poor, weak human beings. But although we feel our inadequacy, writes Paul, we do not despair. The hope of resurrection makes us overlook our present physical dangers in preaching the gospel. With awareness of tremendous privilege and responsibility, as a minister of the new covenant, Paul claims conscientiousness and integrity, no matter how adverse or favorable the conditions of his ministry. There will be times of great triumph and great joy, but there will be times of adversity. And, you know, throughout all of these hardships and triumphs and joys, Paul trusted in God. In 8 1 through 9 15, Paul shifted the emphasis to giving. This is where he talks about giving, many different aspects of giving. He was taking up a collection for fellow believers in Jerusalem who were suffering through a financial crisis. Knowing that God is faithful both when you have needs and to use you when others have needs, it only makes sense to give joyfully. You can give out of sheer obedience or you can enjoy it. You can enjoy doing it. Knowing that you can't outgive God and that he loves, you, loves it when you take pleasure in giving back to him. That's part of, of becoming more Christ-like, learning to give and enjoy it. You can either be a sad giver, doing it grudgingly, a mad giver out of necessity, or a glad giver, giving cheerfully. Pleading for a generous offering to the church in Jerusalem, Paul presents the liberality of Macedonian Christians and worthy of Christian imitation. So he gives them an example that they can follow. Even more so, of course, is the self-sacrifice of Christ. Sometime you may need help, Paul argues. Furthermore, you eagerly seized on the idea, the Corinthians did, of such an offering when I first mentioned it some time ago. 
do not prove that my bragging to the Macedonians about you, uh, your zeal was unfounded. So he's urging the, the, the Corinthians to carry through on their excitement, their zeal when, they, when Paul first proposed this idea. In 10.1 through 13.13, 13, the opponents of Paul have accused him of boldness when absent, cowardice when present. In other words, they were saying, yeah, you, you talk a big talk when you're far away, but when you're here, you're, you're a wimp. He therefore reminds the Corinthians that meekness is a virtue of Christ. But like Christ, can be bold in their presence if he wants, and will be if necessary, though in the Lord, not in himself. In these chapters, Paul presents the credentials of his apostolic ministry. His sincerity as a preacher, he did not even accept wages from the Corinthians. So he wasn't just preaching the gospel to, uh, for filthy lucre, as we say. He wasn't just trying to get something from them. He was actually sincere and wanting to preach the gospel and proclaim the gospel to them. He talked about his extensive sufferings with all the apostles who were witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. They wouldn't have endured the hardships that they did if they weren't sincere, if they didn't really believe that Jesus had rose from the dead. And Paul, uh, when born late in time, uh, experienced him on the road to Damascus. He was willing to endure hardships, willing to endure sufferings. The sufferings of an apostle. He received special revelations from God. Remember that Paul was taught by Jesus Christ after the resurrection for three years in the desert. And of course, the miracle working powers that Paul, along with the other apostles, exercised. It seems that that was uh, the major purpose of miracles in the New Testament church to, to demonstrate the, uh, the authenticity of these men who were called by God for a special purpose, to exercise special teaching and special authority within the church. Though Paul heeded self-commendation, he was forced into defending his apostolic authority. This wasn't something that he looked forward to do, that he, that he relished doing, but it was something that he had to do because his authority, his apostolic authority was challenged. But Paul carefully guards against boastful pride by repeatedly insisting that the recalcitrants, those who are reluctant to accept Paul's authority, are forcing him to write in this vein, and also by mentioning his weakness, particularly his thorn in the flesh. Paul understood 
that the weaker the human instrument, the stronger the divine support required. His weakness showed his Savior's strength. Uh, what, what is the thorn in the flesh? Well, among the suggested identifications of this thorn in the flesh are epilepsy, eye disease, malaria, leprosy, migraine headaches, depression, stammering, and false teachers. So most think it's some sort of ailment, some sort of physical ailment. Others uh, think that, no, the, the thorn in the flesh is, is those who opposed him, the people who opposed Paul. That was his thorn in the flesh. So we don't know for sure, but he'd asked God to take it away. And God said, of course, my grace is sufficient for you. The letter closes with an appeal that Paul's next visit may not have to be an occasion for rebuking the Corinthians again. So he was hoping that he can continue to encourage them to uh, advise them to be jubilant, to be joyful, and not have to correct them anymore. Some of the uh, alleged discrepancies or contradictions, we want to exa examine those. First one is sin or sinless. Second Corinthians 5.21. How could Jesus be made sin when he was sinless? That doesn't seem to make sense, does it? Paul asserts here that Jesus was made to be sin, but many other scriptures, Hebrews 4.15 and 1 Peter 3.18, insist that Jesus was without sin. How could Jesus be without sin if he was made sin for us? How does that work? Jesus was without sin actually, but he was made to be sin for us judicially. That is, by his death on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins and thereby canceled the debt of sin against us. So while Jesus never committed a sin personally, he was made to be sin for us substitutionally. The issue can be summarized as follows. Christ was not sinful in himself. Christ was made to be sin for us. Christ was not sinful personally, but Christ was made to be sin substitutionally. Christ was not sinful actually. Christ was made to be sin judicially. Was Paul the greatest of the apostles or was he the least of the apostles? 2 Corinthians 11, 5, and compared to 1 Corinthians 15, 9. Was Paul the greatest or the least of the apostles? In 2 Corinthians 11, 5, Paul claims, I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. So there he's telling us that he's just as good as any apostle. But elsewhere, he would have us believe that he is the least of the apostles. It would seem that both could not be true. Paul is speaking in different contexts. In the first passage, he is speaking with respect to his ability, his training, his zeal. 
when he says that he's not inferior to any of the apostles. However, unlike the other apostles, Paul had persecuted the church of Christ before his conversion. And therefore he considered himself unworthy even to be an apostle. So with respect to his pre-conversion antagonism to Christ, he rightly considered himself the least of the apostles. The contributions of the epistles of Corinthians, first and second Corinthians. Because so many of the topics treated in these epistles are occasional, in other words, they relate to a particular occasion or particular uh, situation. Because they are occasional and uh, closely related to a particular cultural circumstances, first and second Corinthians offer potent opportunities to observe how the unchanging gospel taught in the languages and cultures of the first century was first applied to changing circumstances. For instance, the particular form of the Corinthian denial of the resurrection may not be popular in the 21st century, although an adaptation of it is returning in some sectors of the New Age movement. But Paul's strenuous insistence on the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus as part of the non-negotiable given of the gospel may be applied in many circumstances. So when people today say that we need to change the gospel, we need to change Christianity to make it more relevant. It was relevant just as it was, just as it was given in the first century, throughout all centuries and in our day today, it's still relevant. We don't have to change the gospel to make it more palatable, more acceptable. Also, 1 Corinthians 15 constitutes not only the earliest written list of witnesses of Jesus' resurrection, but the most important New Testament treatment of the nature of the resurrection. I talked at length about that last week when we, when we looked at 1 Corinthians. We looked at 1 Corinthians 15 uh, more than any other part of the book. And it, it is the earliest written list of witnesses I mentioned that before that the epistles of Paul are actually the earliest documents in the New Testament. They were actually written before the Gospels. So the, this chapter in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, is the earliest list of witnesses, those who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And of course, 1 Corinthians 15 gives us a lengthy treatment about what the resurrected body will be like and what it will not be like. No part of the Pauline corpus, in other words, the, the body of, of writings of Paul, no part of the Pauline corpus more clearly illuminates the character of Paul, the man, Paul the Christian, Paul the pastor, Paul the apostle, than do these epistles. He thereby leaves some substance to his invitation to imitate him and thereby imitate Christ. So Paul urged us to imitate him as he imitated Christ. Well, what does that look like? Well, we see that in, in Paul's epistles and 
particularly we see that in persons of Corinthians. Because in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Paul passionately develops a theology of the cross that shapes Christian ethics, Christian priorities, and Christian attitudes. The apostle directly confronts all approaches to Christianity that heavily seek to integrate a generally orthodox confession with pagan values of self-promotion. And boy, don't we see that today. People who say, well, I'm a Christian, um, I'm looking to the Bible, but let's add these, this other stuff. Let's add, add these other techniques, these other uh, procedures, and, and make it, once again, make Christianity more palatable, palatable, more acceptable. We don't need to do that, do we? We have a faith that was once and for all delivered. The crossed cross not only justifies, it teaches us how to live and die, how to lead and follow, how to love and serve. These two letters therefore speak volumes to contemporary Western Christianity, which often prides itself in its orthodoxy, but is far more comfortable with 21st century secularism than it has any right to be. Along the same lines, 1 Corinthians makes an enormous contribution to the doctrine of the church. Its nature, unity, diversity, characteristics, conduct, interdependence. When we read about the, the various gifts and how we all need each other, like different parts of the body, we are interdependent upon one another. And of course, it gives us instruction about discipline. So very important in today's church. These two epistles constitute the most telling condemnation of arrogance, self-promotion, boasting, and self-confidence in the Pauline corpus. Conversely, they describe in practical terms the nature of Christian life and witness, emphasizing service, self-denial, purity, and weakness as the matrix in which God displays his strength. Perhaps the high watermark is the emphasis on love as the most excellent way in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. The most excellent way that all Christians must pursue. And that concludes our study of 2 Corinthians this evening. I'll close with a word of prayer and then we'll Open it up for questions and comments. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for the detailed instruction and example that you have given us of how we are to conduct ourselves, how we are to operate as your church, how we are to glorify you both by our individual actions and by our collective actions and the way that we love one another, the way that we interact with, with one another, the way we attend to one another's needs. And we ask that you will help us, strengthen us in following those instructions and those examples. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>